Welcome to the Dexcom second quarter 2020 earnings release conference call. My name is Adrian, and I'll be your operator for this call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question-answer session. If you have a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone phone. Please note this conference call is being recorded. And I'll turn the call over to Sean Christensen. Sean, you may begin. Thank you, operator, and welcome to Dexcom's second quarter 2020 earnings call. Our agenda begins with Kevin Sayer, Dexcom's chairman, president, and CEO, who will provide a summary of the quarter, followed by a financial review and outlook from Quentin Blackford, our COO and CFO, and then a strategic update from Steve Paselli, our Executive Vice President of Strategy and Corporate Development. Following our prepared remarks, we will open the call up for your questions. At that time, we ask analysts to limit themselves to one question so we can provide an opportunity for everyone participating today. Please note there are also slides available related to our second quarter performance on the Dexcom Investor Relations website on the events and presentations page. With that, let's review our safe harbor statement. Some of the statements we will make in today's call may constitute forward-looking statements. These statements reflect management's intentions, beliefs, and expectations about future events, strategies, competition, products, operating plans, and performance. All forward-looking statements included in this presentation are made as of the date hereof based on information currently available to Dexcom, are subject to various risks and uncertainties, and actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in the forward-looking statements. The factors that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed or implied by any of these forward-looking statements are detailed in Dexcom's annual report on Form 10-K and other filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update any such forward-looking statements after the date of this presentation or to conform these forward-looking statements to actual results. Additionally, during the call, we will discuss certain financial measures that have not been prepared in accordance with GAAP with respect to our non-GAAP and cash-based results. Unless otherwise noted, all references to financial metrics are presented on a non-GAAP basis. The presentation of this additional information should not be considered in isolation or as a substitute for results or superior to results prepared in accordance with GAAP. Please refer to the tables in our earnings release and the slides accompanying our second quarter earnings presentation for reconciliation of these measures to their most directly comparable GAAP financial measure. Now I will turn it over to Kevin. Thank you, Sean, and thank you everyone for joining us today. We entered the second quarter with several areas of uncertainty as COVID-19 quickly spread. And I'm incredibly proud of how the Dexcom teams have responded. We established three pillars for our organization to ensure the safety of our employees, to maintain service continuity for our customers who rely on their G6 CGM systems, and third, to do our part to assist our communities as we address this novel virus. We are executing well on all three of these measures, and the results are indicated in our second quarter financial and operational performance. Total revenue grew 35% on a constant currency basis in the second quarter, driven by our significant growth in new patient additions over the past year. This represents more than $115 million of absolute dollar growth over the same period in 2019. This growth includes steady traction in the type 2 market, where we continue to see strong new patient additions as coverage expands. As of the close of the second quarter, the type 2 patient population exceeds 20% of our total U.S. patient base, reflecting our growing traction as market access expands. 
Even with rising CGM awareness, there remain many people who continue to rely on finger sticks to manage diabetes, and we believe that there remains a significant opportunity for growth ahead in our core type 1 and type 2 intensive markets. As we discussed in April, new patients were slowed at the start of the quarter as clinicians transitioned to support their patients via telemedicine. We did see a nice recovery in new patient additions in late April and over the remainder of the quarter, especially in the U.S. with our sales and patient care teams doing a great job to ensure that both customers and clinicians were aware of the full set of Dexcom tools to enable virtual care. The strength of our core business also reflects our focus on the service experience that we provide. Whether through our pharmacy channel initiative, the scaling of our customer support organization, or the user interface and tools we built through our software solution, we are prioritizing the needs of our customers. We are now two years into the launch of our G6 system, and the feedback that we continue to receive from our patients is incredible. In fact, net promoter scores for G6 have now reached all-time highs according to both third-party industry analysis as well as our own internal measurements. This includes the most recent DQ&A industry survey of type 1 and type 2 intensive patients in which G6 received a net promoter score of 83. Well ahead of our competitors and in line with the initial results that we saw immediately after the launch of G6 in 2018. Our scores have been especially high among new Medicare customers, where the transition to our no-fingerstick G6 system has been very well received by both type 1 and type 2 intensive users. Our customers are achieving these results while paying an out-of-pocket cost that is comparable or often less than the out-of-pocket cost of our largest competitor. As we've mentioned before, G6 has the lowest out-of-pocket cost for Medicare patients and will be at parity with any other CGM classified as a Class 2 ICGM by the FDA. The pharmacy channel has also proven to be a wonderful option for many of our customers and remains our preferred long-term channel. For customers using pharmacy benefits now, nearly 70% have an out-of-pocket cost less than $60 per month and 30% pay no out-of-pocket cost. Notably, this data is based upon the first five months of 2020 when patients are more likely to have deductibles still outstanding. As you can see, our products continue to demonstrate their ability to perform in real-world settings and drive patient outcomes at affordable levels. This includes the use of Dexcom CGM in additional populations beyond those with insulin-intensive diabetes. As we mentioned on the first quarter call, on April 1st, we received an allowance from the FDA to provide Dexcom CGM to hospitals during the COVID crisis, allowing for remote monitoring on any of their hospitalized patients. Our primary goal in this initiative was, and continues to be, the assistance of frontline workers during the pandemic, and the team has been working continually with sites to get CGM implemented. We've made great progress to date in training hospitals, and the feedback we have received from the care teams has been great. An example near to us in San Diego, Scripps Health, published a case study on their use of Dexcom G6 since the start of the COVID pandemic and highlighted several encouraging points. The use of G6 was eagerly embraced by the hospital and nursing teams, with high rates of satisfaction among patients as well. Early data indicates a trend toward reduced incidence of low and high glucose values across all patients who use CGM. And, specific to COVID-19 patients, visits into the patient's rooms have been decreased by 30 to 50% during the length of stay, saving valuable equipment and also reducing viral exposure for the hospital staff. 
As we stated previously, our hospital efforts were not a material driver of revenue in the second quarter, and we do not expect it to be for the current year. But the data that we are generating is invaluable as we assess the regulatory pathway forward for this important market. Whether it is the shift to telemedicine, the hospital initiative, or our efforts to expand access for the type 2 population with our various partnerships, our team continues to press forward in the midst of the challenges brought on by COVID. We've successfully doubled G6 capacity in the first half of the year, putting us in a great position operationally to address the significant market opportunities ahead of us. G6 is a platform technology. During the past 12 months, we have seen the launch of a very successful automated insulin delivery system at Tandem. Significant progress at Insulet and other automated insulin delivery partners. Introduction of the first BLE-enabled MDI systems. Utilization of an app developed specifically for the type 2 diabetes program at United Healthcare, And the recent launch of G6 Pro to meet a very important market need. We plan for numerous customer experience and product enhancement, as well as new market opportunities for this platform over the next two years. And many of these initiatives will be incorporated into the G7 platform going forward. And finally, on to G7, where we are pressing forward on several fronts. As we said on the last call, COVID-19 has affected our timelines on this project. Specifically, pivotal studies would be delayed for at least six months due to uncertainty at the clinics. And we are going to be fully ready for a G6 conversion when we launch. Some G7 manufacturing scale activities have been delayed as some of our vendors shut down for meaningful periods of time. And let me remind you, we are going to be fully ready for a G7 conversion when we launch. And a very small amount of G6 equipment can be used for G7. I am not going to provide you a specific clinical trial filing and launch dates today. In this competitive world, we have no interest in sharing our playbook with the entire industry. There will not be a limited launch of G7 in 2020. Such a launch would not provide a meaningful financial impact, and rushing to accommodate such a launch would ultimately delay our long-term plans. Design of the hardware, sensor, and electronics is locked, and the G7 algorithm is complete. We have used our extra time to add some great enhancements to this system. We are back in the clinics. We are in the process of finalizing clinical sites and timing for the U.S. and OUS pivotal studies. Our first fully automated G7 line is up in San Diego. Additional G7 automation equipment is arriving regularly in San Diego, Mesa, and at third-party contract manufacturers. I will now turn the call over to Quentin for a review of our financials. Thank you, Kevin. As a reminder, unless otherwise noted, the financial metrics presented today will be discussed on an on-gap basis. Reconciliations to GAAP can be found in today's earnings release as well as on our IR website. For the second quarter of 2020, we reported worldwide revenue of $451.8 million compared to $336.4 million for the second quarter of 2019, representing an absolute dollar increase of more than $115 million and growth of 34% on a reported basis and 35% on a constant currency basis. The strong growth continued despite some of the challenges posed early in the quarter by the pandemic, with continued new patient growth reflecting the overall momentum behind real-time CGM in both the type 1 and type 2 patient populations. As Kevin noted, we are meeting this shift toward real-time CGM with a product in G6 that customers love, leading to our record net promoter score levels. Our U.S. business remained very strong in the second quarter with growth of 38% over the second quarter of 2019. This growth extended across all three of our primary U.S. channels, 
pharmacy, DME, and Medicare. Pharmacy remains the fastest growing channel among the three, and our teams continue to prioritize this as a key component of our long-term strategy based on the benefits provided to Dexcom, clinicians, and especially our customers. The majority of national plans and PBMs are now covering Dexcom via the pharmacy benefit, with many incorporating a dual pharmacy and DME benefit. Our international business grew 22% in the second quarter on a constant currency basis with consistent growth across our direct and distributor markets. We did see a greater impact to new patients in certain international markets as a result of COVID in the second quarter compared to the U.S. Unlike the first quarter, the reduced access for in-clinic visits for new patients did not allow us to offset our anticipated second quarter price impact with the same degree of volume gains. However, we remain confident in our long-term strategy as we saw improvement throughout the quarter with new patient growth recovering and our direct markets returning to strong growth in June, as well as distributor orders beginning to rebound early in the third quarter. We are creating streamlined pathways for new patients to access Dexcom CGM through different channels in our international markets. Building from the successful launch of our Canadian e-commerce platform, which drove record new patient growth following its launch in 2019, we recently expanded the e-commerce opportunity to our UK market and are encouraged by the similar early results. Canada and the UK were amongst our highest growth markets in the second quarter. Our second quarter gross profit was $289.7 million, or 64.1% of revenue, compared to 61.4% of revenue in the second quarter of 2019. Gross margin was sequentially consistent with our Q1 performance and consistent with the expectations that we noted on the Q1 call for a more muted improvement between Q1 in Q4 of 2020 as we continue to ramp costs associated with the introduction of our G7 lines. Importantly, we now have our first G7 line in place in producing product for clinical trials. The 270 basis point year-over-year margin improvement was driven primarily by product design developments, most notably our lower cost transmitter. Operating expenses were $213 million for Q2 2020 compared to $200.3 million in Q2 2019. This reflects an increase of 6% year-over-year and a 1,240 basis point reduction as a percent of revenue from the second quarter of 2019. As an organization, we continue to make great strides as we invest in the initiatives that will drive Dexcom's long-term growth, while also remaining disciplined as an organization, and this is evident in our second quarter results. Just as COVID did impact our top line, it also had an impact on certain spending activities, which resulted in some of the operating margin improvement during the quarter and was therefore temporary in nature. As a result, we expect moderation in the year-over-year margin comparisons in the second half of the year as we invest in several key initiatives for the company, including the G7 clinical trials, G7 manufacturing scale-up, our new market efforts, and direct-to-consumer advertising that we began to accelerate late in the second quarter. Operating income was $76.7 million, or 17% of revenue in the second quarter of 2020, compared to $6.2 million, or 1.8% of revenue in the same quarter of 2019. This reflects a year-over-year improvement of more than 1,500 basis points in operating margin for the quarter. Adjusted EBITDA was $122.6 million, or 27.1% of revenue for the second quarter, compared to $45.9 million, or 13.6% of revenue for the second quarter of 2019. Net income for the second quarter was $77.1 million, or $0.79 per share. 
Over the past two years, we have made tremendous progress towards becoming a profitable company. As a result, it is now becoming evident that we're going to be able to utilize the significant historic tax benefits that we have accrued over time, and we are approaching a position where in the near future we expect to release the valuation allowance that we have been required to place against many of our tax benefits in the past. This is something that we have been in front of and planning for, including the implementation of a global tax structure over the last couple of years that will allow us to continue to expand rapidly and efficiently on a global basis. As we set expectations for 2021, we will look to provide clarity around our annual tax rate expectations and leverage the benefits associated with the tax structure we put in place in contemplation of such an event. In early May, we took advantage of market conditions to further solidify our balance sheet with a new convertible note offering. On the strength of the offering, we closed the quarter in a great financial position with more than $2.5 billion of cash. Utilizing a combination of the cash generated from the convertible note offering, as well as Dexcom stock, we redeemed a majority of our 2022 convertible notes in the second quarter and will redeem the remainder later this week. Our cash position leaves us in great shape to pursue the growth opportunities ahead of us, including support of the development of new markets, opportunistic investment and capabilities that complement our growth, and capital allocation into our G7 scale-up and Malaysian manufacturing facility. As we look to the second half of the year, there remain several areas of uncertainty as we contemplate the continuation of the COVID pandemic and its global impact, including employment rates and uptake of our patient assistance program in the U.S. Nevertheless, based on our experience in the second quarter, the tools that our teams have developed to support virtual patient care and the growing clinical awareness of the value of CGM, particularly in the current environment, we believe there is enough visibility to reinstate full-year guidance. We now expect 2020 revenue to be approximately $1.85 billion, representing growth of 25% over 2019. This represents an increase of $100 million from the midpoint of our initial 2020 guidance, resulting from the strength of the business in the first half of the year. Our teams have responded well and continued to drive new patient adoption and ensure the satisfaction of our existing patients. Given the recent uptick in COVID cases globally, and in the U.S. in particular, our guidance assumes approximately 75 to 80 percent of our original expectations for global new patients in the back half of the year, which was consistent with what we had experienced in late March and into April at the outset of the COVID outbreak globally. Turning to margins, we now anticipate the following non-GAAP results to meet or exceed the following levels, which are ahead of what we established at the start of the year, including increasing gross margin expectations to meet or exceed 65%, representing a steady improvement over 2019. This includes costs associated with the initial development of our Malaysia manufacturing facility in support of the growth of our international business and is in line with our long-term expectations for gross margins in the mid-60s. We are now increasing operating margin expectations to meet or exceed 14%. This revised guidance contemplates the increased second half spending associated with the initiatives that I previously mentioned, yet still demonstrating annually year-over-year improvement as we leverage our strong top-line results. Finally, we are increasing our expected adjusted EBITDA margins to meet or exceed 24% for the year. Our team has done a great job to execute on our goal of doubling G6 capacity in the first half of 2020, despite an extraordinarily difficult and unanticipated operating environment, putting the company in its best position since the launch of G6 to meet the many opportunities in front of us. And we now look forward to replicating that momentum with the scale-up of our G7 lines. With that, I will now turn the call over to Steve for a strategic update. 
Thanks, Quentin. We continue to make great strides in executing on our strategic priorities, even as we navigate the current environment with the utmost care for the health of our employees, the continued service of our patients, and assistance to our communities. The doubling of G6 capacity in the first half of the year has placed us in a great position to creatively target new customers and extend the launch of G6 in several of our existing markets. We are gaining steady traction among type 2 insulin intensive customers, building from our efforts to drive expanded access beyond Medicare and into commercial payers, as we've seen with United Healthcare and more recently Aetna, both of which now provide access through the pharmacy. At the recent virtual ADA conference, we presented encouraging data on a subset of our type 2 intensive patients after their first 12 weeks of usage of G6. The data demonstrated average A1C reduction of 1.5%, significant improvement to quality of life metrics, and 95% customer satisfaction with G6. COVID has also brought a clear focus to the long-term potential for CGM and the importance of glycemic control. We've spoken at length about the large market opportunities ahead for Dexcom, including our focus on the broader type 2 market, hospital use, and use during pregnancy. The fact that all three of these populations have now received exemptions to allow for broader access to Dexcom CGM during the pandemic provides validation for these new market expansions. In early April, the FDA made a special allowance to permit the use of CGM in the hospital setting. In early May, we saw a special ruling from CMS to allow access to all people with diabetes who are diagnosed with COVID-19. And earlier this month, Health Canada issued an interim order for the use of G6 for all women with diabetes who are pregnant during the pandemic and more and more data continue to emerge supporting these decisions and the value of CGM beyond the intensive insulin-using population. At ADA, our partners at Undua presented data comparing the impact of CGM versus non-CGM use in their virtual diabetes clinic. While both cohorts of patients ultimately saw a significant A1C decrease, the group using Dexcom G6 saw a reduction nearly two times as much as those not using CGM. In addition, earlier this month, United Healthcare announced the expansion of their Level 2 digital health therapy to more than 230,000 people with type 2 diabetes. This program, which utilizes G6 as a core component, saw great results in United's initial pilot work, including clinically significant A1C reduction for those with a baseline A1C greater than 8 and significant reductions to medication usage, with some participants even achieving remission and no longer needing medication. We are pressing forward in support of our various partnerships to reach the whole type 2 population, including our work with United Healthcare, Intermountain Healthcare, Livongo, WellDoc, Onduo, and others. We are also excited about the launch of our G6 professional product, which has several appealing use cases as we explore the full value of our CGM platform. We are also excited about the launch of our G6 professional product, which has several appealing use cases as we explore the full value of our CGM platform. The product provides a natural extension into the type 2 non-intensive market by leveraging the strong existing reimbursement framework for professional CGM with a tool that empowers clinicians. G6 Pro gives doctors the flexibility to assess a patient's glycemic health in real time for all patients with diabetes. As a single-use product, G6 Pro will also serve as a great introduction for a patient looking to experience the functionality of Dexcom CGM. G6 Pro can also be prescribed for use in blinded mode, where the patient does not see the real-time data, to all people, ages two years and up, not just people with diabetes, providing all people with the opportunity to assess their glycemic health. Our strategy of prioritizing interoperability and patient choice continues to leave us well-positioned as the insulin delivery market shifts toward commercial connected devices. In early May, we signed an agreement to collaborate with Ipsamed, adding another key partner to our existing partners in Eli Lilly, Insulet, Novo Nordisk, and Tandem Diabetes. Thank you, Steve. 
As a reminder, we ask our audience to limit themselves to only one question at this time and then re-enter the queue if necessary. Adrian, please provide the Q&A instructions. Thank you. We'll now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star and one on your touchstone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you're using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star and one on your touchstone phone. And our first question comes from Jeff Johnson from Baird. Your line is open. Thank you. Good afternoon, guys. Can you hear me okay? We can. Perfect. Great. Uh, thanks for all the information on the call and congratulations on the quarter. So, Kevin and Steve, you both touched on hospital and pregnancy uh, gestational use. Uh, I guess what I'd love to hear an update on is maybe the pathway and timelines to maybe extending some of those reimbursements to more of a permanent nature, uh, you know, whether that's uh, Canada, the U.K., where we've seen some of the movement on gestational over the last year, uh, or even in the U.S., uh, just, again, pathway and timelines on how we should think about when those could become uh, more permanent contributors to the model. Thank you. You bet. I'll take that, Jeff. Uh, on the hospital side, we are really now just starting to gather data from the centers that you see, Jim. You know, when we started the whole hospital initiative, it was just let's get the product out there uh, and, and help the staff at the hospitals and also make patients healthier. And we navigated through a series of of, of things that we really didn't anticipate very well, such as the IT systems at the hospital and things of that nature. So we're now starting to gather data. Uh, we also have learned, uh, interestingly enough, that a lot of the hospitals, even though we, they all got the same product, had different protocols and different way they use CGM. Some of the these centers would put it on anybody with diabetes, somebody would put anybody with elevated glucose levels, and others would take the approach: we're not going to do this until somebody's really sick. So we're going to learn more about the protocols and how it was used and to start gathering data about the sensor and, and how it worked. And also we're going to try and gather data with respect to how these patients were treated from a drug side as well. Anecdotally, what we've heard is our product performed in the hospital the way we thought it would, that its accuracy and performance really wasn't affected by the compounds used uh, to treat these patients. And we should have a pretty good picture of where it is. We've not had any additional discussions with the agency on the hospital data yet because we really haven't had anything in a form that we could present that would start us down a path. As far as next steps in the hospital, we'll take a – we still have the ability to use the, the product in the system. And with COVID not going away, I think we'll be able to gather more data. And now that we've been through this initial wave of learning, we'll probably get better data and more data and know what we're looking for uh, going forward and put together data. We'll present that to the FDA and at the same time, we'll present them with a plan as to what we think we need to do next. That's gonna be a while, uh, and but we've, we've, we've got some time to gather more data. On the gestational side and the pregnancy side, we have seen some countries open up and say, hey, let's go do this. Uh, the UK and Canada that, that you pointed out We've had uh, very detailed discussions with the FDA as to what we need to do on the pregnancy side to get uh, that label, and we are working on that. We all know the product works very well in pregnancy. All you've got to do is go to social media and see all the Dexcom patients who have had a child that they never thought they would have uh, who have diabetes, uh, you know, of our type 1 patients. On the gestational side, we think our opportunity is, is outstanding, not only from a manage those patients who have gestational diabetes as a predictor of those who may in fact get it. 
And again, we are, we are running studies. There are studies being run by many others to determine what that model looks like. I think our first step there, uh, Jeff, is we need to get just a pregnancy indication with the FDA rather than a specific gestational one, and then uh, head down the line to, to develop a product and a platform that fits into that market on a cost-effective and a positive outcome basis, but we're very optimistic that it will. And our next question comes from Kyle Rose, Mechanicord. Your line is open. Great. Thank you very much for taking the questions. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, about the quarter and maybe just kind of understand any differences you're seeing in underlying the patient behavior or patient demand in, in states or geographies that, that have, you know, high levels of, of, of COVID currently or any states or geographies, you know, that don't. I'm just trying to understand how much of an impact, you know, we saw to new patient starts with respect to, uh, you know, COVID in the quarter and how we should think about, you know, the potential for, the rising case volumes to potentially you know, increase in the second half of the year. Yeah, we didn't quantify exactly what we believe the impact to be in the second quarter, but we tried to, to give some color, and it's, it's the foundation for how we thought about the back half of the year as well. If you look at the end of March and into April, new patient starts when COVID was really starting to ramp at that point in time was roughly 75% of, of kind of that normal range that we would have expected. So you about, saw about a 25% impact on the new patient starts at that point in time. Now, I, I will say over the course of the quarter into June, we saw that rebound nicely back in line with previous expectations as uh, things started to come under a bit of control. Now, we saw it pick up a little bit, you know, in July as the COVID cases have increased a bit more that we're all aware of. And, and we were very clear in our guidance that we're assuming roughly 75% to 80% of new patient starts throughout the back, you know, half of the year. That's the best data point we have at this point in time. So I would just take you back to, to that, you know, reference point of 75% to 80% roughly new patient starts throughout the month of April is kind of how we saw the impact in the quarter. And our next question comes from Ryan Blicker from Cohen. Your line is open. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, can you talk a bit more about the recent launch of United Healthcare's Level 2 program? How significant of a catalyst is this for non-intensive type 2 adoption in the U.S.? And do you believe that this program, together with Intermountain data that you shared, suggests that CGM use will be more frequent, frequent and sustained among non-intensive type 2 patients over the long term than the intermittent use case you've historically discussed? Yeah, I think it's certainly, this is Steve, it's certainly evolving, but I think these are all, you know, validating points for us, right? That that certainly United Healthcare serves more than 230,000 non-insulin-taking type 2 patients, and we would hope that over time that program is, is expanded pretty dramatically beyond where it is today. We're in the midst of just continuing to capture data and prove out the value of this technology in the non-intensive patient population. We know we have something there. We know it's important. Whether it becomes a you know, real-time, all-the-time use case over time, I, it, it very well could be. Um, we're seeing some very positive outcomes for people using it for a frankly, a longer period of time than, than maybe we would have cited previously. So there is that opportunity. You know, reimbursement is still in its infancy in the non-insulin using uh, patient population. So, you know, we've, we've not only got to prove the outcomes, we've, we've got to get the, the, the product paid for. So it's still not, you know, even the balance of this year, not going to be, you know, a material piece of the business, but it's, it's going to continue to grow over the coming years for sure. And the next question comes from Bobby Marcus from J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, appreciate the question. Congrats on a good quarter. Um, 
Gwen, I want to uh, maybe spend a little bit on the guidance here. Um, you touched on new patient expectations. Um, you know, usually at the beginning of the year at J.P. Morgan, when you give guidance, you give us a little flavor for how we should think about revenue per patient and the headwind expected there for, you know, throughout the year as you, you shift into pharmacy and restructure some of your uh, negotiations on price and international. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us a, a little bit more flavor as we're halfway through the year, what's baked into guidance, and also if you could spend some time walking us through the uh, bottom line expectations. You put up a fantastic uh, adjusted EBITDA this quarter. You know, how much of that really um, is the new baseline, and if you could quantify how much was just deferred spending that we should expect in the back part of the year. Thanks. Great. So with respect to the first part of that question around top line and, and revenue per patient or maybe the pricing headwinds that we've talked about, you know, historically, certainly we came into the year with an expectation that that was going to be somewhere around 125 to 150 million, you know, likely being closer to that $150 million range. I can tell you that you know, based upon where we saw price come in in Q2, it was right in line with our expectation. We have not changed our pricing assumption in our full-year guidance at this point in time. We still expect it to be around that $150 million range. So not anything significant in terms of a change there. The strategy we've put in place to step this down over time continues to play out exactly as we had expected. So um, that continues to be consistent. With respect to the bottom line, you know, we've made incredible progress from a profitability perspective really over the last, call it four or five quarters now, with nearly 1,500 basis points of improvement in the operating margin profile in Q2 alone. There's no question that uh, some of the spending was impacted in the quarter, particularly around efforts like DTC as we started to pull back some of that early in the quarter just with the uncertainty around how COVID was going to impact things uh, over the course of the quarter and into the back part of the year. I will tell you, we, we did start that back up in early Q3, so you're going to see incremental spending in the back half of the year around things like DTC. The other thing to keep in mind that's going to impact your spending trends that won't allow the same kind of improvement in Q2 to play through in the back half of the year is the fact that we're starting up the G7 trials. We've been very you know, open and deliberate about the spend that's going to go into that. We're putting forward quite a bit of resources around standing up those manufacturing capabilities and ensuring that capacity is going to be there right out of the gate. You know, we do have the first line up. There's incremental lines coming right behind it as we speak and, and building out that entire supply chain capability. And then finally, you know, we've already spent some time talking about it on the call today, but you look at opportunities like hospital, gestational, those are significant revenue drivers for us into the future. We're going to make sure that we're spending in those areas uh, to, to ensure that we open those up and, and provide for growth into the future. So we are going to spend in the back part of the year, uh, you're not going to see the same sort of improvement, but at the same time, we're committed that over time we will continue to you know, mature as an organization. We're going to step towards the long-term goals of profitability that we've laid out, and I think we've made great progress towards it. But you're not going to see these sorts of improvement every single quarter. I think you need to look at it over a period of time. And our next question comes to Margaret Kezar from William Blair. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I wanted to follow up on the type 2 mix this quarter. The 20% number seemed pretty strong, and it seems like it's increasing. So uh, can you guys give us any sense around, you know, where these patients are coming from? Are they top prescribers for Dexcom, for other T1s, or anything on patient profile, you know, new to CGM or early adopters? 
you know, long story short, you know, as we look at that T2 growth, um, even within the intensive population, uh, going into the back end of this year and into next, is it push or pull, or uh, is it getting easier at all? Thanks. Well, uh, this, Kevin, I'll take that. It is getting easier, and I think the biggest catalyst in all this was when we got Medicare approval a while ago, and now we're getting Medicare awareness uh, with these insulin-using patients, because a large number of insulin-using patients in this type 2 population are, in fact, Medicare patients. Uh, so that has been a, a big catalyst for growth, particularly as we've gotten better at, at serving and taking care of those patients. I think the other catalyst is just the approvals we received from some of the large payers. Uh, you know, Steve pointed out United Healthcare Network covering type 2 patients on intensive insulin recently, uh, again, giving more patients access to it. As these patients are having positive outcomes, uh, access is growing, and they're matching the CMS uh, approvals that we've already received. So it's coming across the board, and, and it's not coming just from our primary uh, prescribers. They're coming from everywhere. Many of these patients don't even see endocrinologists, so they're finding out about Dexcom and coming to us directly because of our marketing efforts and because what they've heard word of mouth or what they've seen from others. Uh, we've always felt this would be a great use of our technology, and it's proving to be exactly that. And our next question comes from Jason Bedford from Raymond James. Uh, hi, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for, for taking the questions. So I guess just on the international business, it looks like that's probably the only place you could really pick at here. Um, Quinton, can you just summarize why the growth was a bit slower than historical trends? Uh, you seem to infer that trends in the direct market picked up in June and in, in distributor markets in July. Can we assume that you expect a, a greater than seasonal impact in international sales in the second half? Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I think, you know, it's a bit premature to to speak to that, you know, fact in terms of playing out over the course of Q3 with respect to the distributor orders. Certainly we saw those orders start to come through, and in the third quarter I think the question becomes, you know, based upon what was happening with COVID in the broader environment today, do we see that actually, you know, rebound and, and double up in terms of the orders in Q3, or does everything just kind of defer and push a bit? Our, our guidance would contemplate the fact that it that it pushes at this point in time, just based upon the best information that we have. If it if it were to all come in, then terrific. I think we'd be very happy. Uh, just a, a little bit of color around that OUS result. I, I think. What you're seeing there is, is very comparable to what the broader marketplace and industry realized over the course of the quarter as well. You know, I think if you look at the, the data points that have been put out there by our competitors thus far, uh, they saw a slowdown in growth in Q2 in their international business, just as we did. You know, sequentially, absolute dollars stepped down from Q1 into Q2, which we certainly saw as well. But the broad market saw the same thing. So I don't think you're seeing anything that's unique to, to Dexcom. Um, I think over time we remain as bullish as, as ever on the international opportunity. We've stated the fact that we're going to step down price uh, over time in the international space as well. And when you have a quarter like Q2 where the ability for new patients to get into the clinic and come onto the product becomes a bit muted, you see a bit more of a pronounced impact. So uh, that's all part of a long-term strategy that we believe in and, and are very bullish around. So I, we're still very, very optimistic and excited about that international business, but you know, that's a bit of color that played out in Q2, and, and with respect to Q3, our view is that things probably push, but, but if we see it rebound, then great, there's upside to the number. And our next question comes to Joanne Winch from Citibank. Your line is open. 
good afternoon and a uh, nice quarter. Uh, ADA seems like a million years ago now, you know, June. Um, but, you know, can you give us an idea of what the key things were that you walked away from that you think we'll be talking about over the next 18 months? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. I think, again, the walk away from ADA is how important CGM has become in all this. Almost every presentation you went to, every pre presentation we saw, the performance of drugs or the performance of other systems is based on CGM data. From Dexcom's perspective, obviously the drive of the automated insulin delivery systems was largely driven by Dexcom sensors, uh, regardless of who the presenter was up at the pulpit uh, other than Medtronic, and we can see our sensor can drive great outcomes there. I, I think the other, you know, the other takeaway is we're not stopping innovation in, in diabetes. Everybody's still pushing forward, and we still think there's better ways to attack this. Uh, this is a big cost and healthcare problem in our country and around the world. And I don't think anybody's going to slow down. But, you know, our biggest takeaway, compare that to your first ADA, Joanne, where we had to beg for anybody to even listen to us. Uh, now every place uh, we go and, and just our industry grows, CGM has become the dominant technology here across all of the diabetes treatments. And we're looking forward to just continuing to be better. And our next question comes from Matt O'Brien from Piper Sandler. Your line is open. Hi, right, good afternoon. This is Jason on for Matt. Thanks for taking the question. Congrats on a nice quarter here. Uh, Kevin or Steve, higher-level question on the non-intensive side. Uh, appreciate some of the comments you made, but hope you can discuss maybe how you, how you perceive these models or programs evolving over the next few years. Do you expect the revenue model to be similar to what you see with the intensively managed population, or do you expect it to take different forms with maybe some possible risk-sharing or shared cost-savings elements? Just Anything you can offer there on how you see the contracts coming together over time now that you've been engaged with payers and other partners on various models? Thanks. Yeah, this, this Kevin, I'll add a bit to Steve's comments earlier. We, we don't see one solution yet. Uh, we are working with a number of partners on the payer front. We're working uh, with clinics. We're working with a lot of these uh, diabetes management systems as well to provide CGM data to that to figure out what the best model for these patients is. We're not only working with these partners, but we're doing a lot of market research on our own. And one of Steve's comments that is becoming very evident in all the work that we do is type 2 patients are more than open to wearing CGM and learning what's going on with their bodies. They want a different experience than we offer today for the type 1 patients, connecting to insulin pumps and, and, and Bluetooth pens and sophisticated predictive alerts and alarms and things like that, that we have today are not as important to that group. But what is important to that group is that they're healthy and that we can reduce their meds, that we can reduce their costs, that we can make their physician visits more productive and we can make changes in their health that, that save them, uh, you know, these complications over the years. So I think what you'll see is we'll continue to pursue all these models at the same time we're going to pursue the proper product configuration and reimbursement models for us. I've been in numerous discussions where we ask, if we get paid X for an intensive patient for a year, what should we, what should be the reimbursement rate for non-intensive type two? Because the fact is we aren't saving their life on a, a near-term basis with an alert and alarm. We are not giving them something that determines their drug dosing decision, but we are giving information to better manage their lives. So we think there may ultimately be a different class of product here and a different form of reimbursement, even if patients wear them all the time which is, again, another reason we're investing so much in scale here, because we'd like these things everywhere. 
I think the market's developing nicely and the constant thread coming from all these approaches is this thing works. And our next question comes from Travis D. from Bank of America. Your line is open. Hi, thanks for taking the questions. Um, just wanted to touch on the hospital channel a bit more. Just love to hear how you're going to approach the commercial aspect longer term. You don't really have reps in the hospital. Uh, do you need a partner there? Or are you planning to build out a separate sales force? And, and also, uh, I don't know if you're willing to say the, the revenues generated in the hospital this quarter, if that was a few million dollars or, or more than that. Uh, the revenues in the hospital wouldn't have a significant impact on the financials. The costs far exceeded the revenues, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, with respect to the channel, we've not made a decision there as far as how we'd pursue that. We are early enough in this process that, that, that we're not ready to adopt a commercial model. We want to leave our options open. We would explore partners. We would explore doing it ourselves, uh, but we'll figure out where to best use our dollars, uh, and, and we haven't made a decision there yet. And our next question comes from David Lewis from Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. Uh, Quinton, just a quick follow-up here for you on guidance. So um, in the second half, you're effectively assuming <clears throat> that new patient start rates are similar to sort of the trough of COVID, even though there probably has been some improvement and you're, you're not assuming any distributors sort of recoup in, in XUS markets. Um, and just kind of related to that, can you just give us a sense, XUS, whether this was country-specific or just broadly XUS? Because our sense is maybe you know, Germany performed differently than Canada or performed differently than, uh, than France. Um, so those two quick ones, thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, in the prepared remarks, we were, we were pretty clear with the fact that we saw COVID did impact certain countries a little bit differently than others. You know, UK and Canada performed incredibly well, particularly on the e-commerce platform that we had put in place. Uh, Germany certainly was impacted, and our distributor markets were certainly impacted. I on the distributor you know, point, again, um, I think it's just too early to tell if that's going to double up in Q3 or if that's just going to be simply something that pushes out over the course of, of the remainder of the year. I think at some point in time it will catch up to itself, um, and, and we'll be back on that same trajectory. It's just too hard to predict if that happens in the next six months or not. And our guidance would, would uh, be based off the fact that it does not, that it's been pushed. That's kind of how we thought about it. So. Uh, and then your point on just the, the new patient starts in the back half of the year, like I said, you know, we're, we're trying to create some clarity for you guys in the back half of the year around what we're confident that we can deliver on. Uh, we're using the best data points that we have from our own experience, and, and that 75 to 80 percent uh, new patient start is what we realized early in the second quarter as COVID was kind of starting to, to really gain some traction you know, we've seen COVID numbers increasing here recently in, in the third quarter as well, and so that's the best data point that we have. So that's how we went about putting the numbers together. Obviously, if we can navigate through that more effectively or to a better degree, uh, then there's going to be opportunity in the, the guidance number, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves at this point. And our next question comes from Larry Beagleson from Wells Fargo. Hey, good afternoon, uh, guys. Thanks for taking the question. Uh, Kevin, as you mentioned up front, Medicare is not enforcing the clinical criteria for CGM uh, during the pandemic. Uh, it's unclear if this applies to all type 1 and type 2 patients or just those affected by COVID. How broadly have phys physicians interpreted this rule and, and what impact have you seen in the market? And, and do you expect CMS to continue to allow this exception uh, through uh, next year? Thanks for taking the question. You bet. Uh, we do not believe it's had an exceptional impact on our business uh, as far as bringing more Medicare patients to the table, and and but but they are coming. Uh, 
on a broad scale basis, as we look at the, the Medicare ruling, we would be very pleased if, if we could get uh, the criteria for Medicare patients um, much more condensed and, and much more realistic. And we, we actually met on that this morning, and one of the things pointed out yet again to me is Medicare requires our patients to document that they do four finger sticks a day before they go to CGM, and our patients only reimbursed for three finger sticks a day by CMS. So there are large inconsistencies there, and this is a product that, that has tremendous impact with these patients. It would certainly bear a goal to have these coverage criteria and, and the steps that patients have to go through to get CGM simplified and more broadly, more broadly applied across all of diabetes. But that's something we're working on now, and I can't anticipate where CMS is going to go. Uh, but it certainly makes sense uh, that, that we do that. And our next question comes from Danielle Antelosi from SVB Leering. Your line is open. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Thanks so much for taking the question. Congrats on another very strong quarter. Um, just, a, just a quick question on the type 2s. I think you mentioned it's now 20%. I think you said of your installed base, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you said new patient ads. But how has that changed versus the year ago period? Just trying to get a sense of, of how that may, might be growing. Yeah, no, it's certainly increasing nicely, particularly as we continue to, to focus in that particular area. The 20% is of the, the install base. So we didn't give a, a sense in terms of the overall growth in that particular area, but we've talked about our focus there and opening up those channels. And I think, you know, the fact that we're now talking about it just indicates the progress that we're making there. So that's the extent of the detail we've given around it. And our next question comes from Matthew Blackman from Stiefel. Your line is open. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for the uh, question. And, and Quentin, thanks for the color on new patient start headwinds. I was hoping you could extend those comments to the installed base. Was there any notable change in attrition or utilization rates during the quarter or the first half of 20? And are you making any changes to how you're thinking about uh, those same attrition utilization risks in this new guidance? Thanks. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we didn't really see anything over the course of Q2. But to be fair, you know, I think it's probably a bit early to really understand whether or not we will see an impact. And, and therefore, we have contemplated something in our guidance in the back part of the year around our patient assistance program or, or attrition. And, you know, keep in mind, we announced, you know, during the second quarter that we would be putting in place a patient assistance program, but that wasn't going to be effective until the third quarter. Our view is that, you know, if a patient were going to a TRIT, they would likely fall into that program. So, when we talk about guidance in the back half of the year, you've got a couple things playing out there. You've got the new patient starts that we've been very clear, 75 to 80% is how we've modeled it. But then we also are assuming that we're going to see some impact on attrition and they're going to fall into this patient assistance program, which is going to mean quite a bit less revenue to us, uh, obviously, than what we might have normally received from them. So that's playing out in the back part as well. And our next question comes from Chris Pasquale from Guggenheim. Thanks. Uh, Quentin, two quick model questions. First, just any numbers you could put around the expense shift from 2Q in the back half of the year. The leverage was really impressive. It would be great to have a better sense for how much of that was one time. And then can you give us any broad strokes on what you're thinking in terms of the tax rate once you start reporting one from an income statement perspective? Thanks. Yeah, we're not going to talk to the tax rate just yet. Um, I think, you know, we need to get to the point where we flip that valuation allowance. We don't know exactly when that's going to be just yet, but we know that it's coming here in the in the near future. And the last thing I want to do is 
like I said, put a, a couple hundred million dollar gain through the, the financial statements that surprises everybody in the particular period. I, I think it's important to know we're out in front of this. We anticipate it. We've put a tax structure in place that's going to allow us to have a very efficient global tax structure and, and grow globally in a very efficient way with a, a very attractive tax rate. So we've been well in front of this for quite some time, and the, the point is just to start to put it on your radar. Um, with respect to the other question, sorry, remind me what the other question was. OPEX in the back part of the year. Yeah. So, you know, there wasn't a significant impact that, that moved the needle meaningfully in the second quarter. I mean, call it roughly $10 million or so of spend that, that likely would have shown up in the quarter had we not been impacted. But I think importantly, you know, the back half of the year is where you're going to see a significant ramp in the overall spend profile, particularly with G7, you know, clinical trials getting going, G7 scale really taking off, and then turning on the DTC spigot um, for the first time in a significant way. I, I think one of the things that maybe is not as appreciated by folks is that historically we've always been constrained from an inventory position. We exited Q2 in the strongest inventory position that we've been in with respect to G6 in our company's history. That allows us to start to open up opportunities like DTC in a significant way that we believe can drive growth into the future. So you're gonna see that play out. Uh, you know, spending's gonna be significantly higher in the back half. When you do your modeling, it's gonna be almost $100 million of spend higher in the back half. We recognize that and realize it, uh, but those things that I just indicated are gonna be the areas that we primarily focus on in our spending. And as a reminder to re-enter the queue, please press star then one on your touchtone phone and star one to re-enter the queue. One moment. One moment. And Ravi Misi, your line is open from Baron Big Capital. Uh, hi, how are you doing? It's, it's Misra. Um, I hope everyone's okay. I, I just want to pick your brains a little bit more around the reimbursement for some of this uh, less intensive insulin management patients. Steve or, or Kevin, can you help out to think about what, what's the index comms control in terms of what you think you need to do to establish that uh, uh, use case in, in a yeah. kind of payment? Thanks. Obviously, first and foremost, it's to build, as Kevin mentioned, to build the right products for this patient population. We think the products are going to be different. They're not going to have all the, there won't be nearly as, I don't want to say nearly as robust because the, the performance of the underlying sensor will be the same. But having some of the bells and whistles that we need for the intensive insulin population just don't apply to type 2s. The software experience needs to be different. So those types of things are, are within our control or even, frankly, within the control of some of our partners that we've talked about. Right, Livongo offers a patient experience to their patients. United, the, the Level 2 program is, a, is an experience that we've developed together with United, but it's really a United Healthcare uh, patient experience. So, you know, we're not going to, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all here. We're going to offer our own tools. We do offer our own tools today, and we're going to enable multiple players in this business to offer the appropriate tools to this patient population because we know it's such a massive opportunity that it behooves us to, to just make our sensors available to to you know, anybody who's a viable company. And the next question comes from Stephen Lichtman from Oppenheimer. Your line is open. Thank you. Hi, guys. I um, wonder if you could provide some more color on the e-commerce initiatives that you mentioned are expanding internationally. Uh, 
in what ways has it helped in, in Canada and now UK during COVID in terms of driving new patients and, and getting them started on, on CGM? Well, certainly, I think, you know, from an access perspective, it just makes it very easy for the patient to be able to find our product available, you know, right on the web uh, in their particular country. And in many ways, you know, it becomes something we can scale relatively easily as we choose new countries to take it into. And I, I think that, you know, when folks are, are searching or trying to learn about the product and then they have the ability to purchase it uh, right there at their fingertips in a, in a web platform, it just makes it naturally easier to come onto the technology. And I think you see what played out in Canada in terms of record number of new patients shortly after we launched it. The early success in the UK uh, clearly, you know, speaks to the benefit of the, the e-commerce platform as well. So I, I think it's something that we can scale over time as we take into new countries, and it clearly has the benefits with it. You know, I think you heard in the prepared remarks, nearly 70% of all of our patients come onto our product for the first time through some sort of either virtual training or online training capability or in-app capability. So, you know, the e-commerce platform kind of lends itself uh, very naturally into to that ability to come onto the product. And our next question comes from Matt Taylor from UPS. Your line is open. Uh, thanks. Uh, this is actually Young in for Matt. Um, maybe a question on the, um, the DTC ads. Can you Talk a little bit about the, the impact that might have on um, second half growth. Um, what's the focus in terms of the patient segment or geographically? Um, are you able to um, take advantage of um, lower ad rates to go a little bit more aggressive on that? Thanks. Yeah, this is Kevin. I'll take that. Uh, with respect to the ad rates and the spending, I, I don't get too involved in that one anymore. I, I leave that to the, to the other guys. But our team is very targeted with respect to the ads that we develop, where we run them, when we run them, and we have tremendous systems in place to monitor the leads that come in from those ads. We have, a, a, again, a team in place that if you watch our ad and email us and want information, we get back to those patients very quickly. They don't wait for several days. It's, it's a matter of hours, and we get back to those patients and, and let them know we are here, and we will help them and educate them and want to get there. Uh, insurance information, their doctor information, everything that patient might need. We do track that spending and where we spend it. We track the results from it, and then we invest in those places where we think uh, it will be better. But we are seeing, I, I, you know, working from home now, we see uh, Dexcom ads wherever we we watch television a lot more than we used to, and uh, I, I think they've been very successful, and our team is is really good at this. And I would just say, you know, from a return on investment perspective, there's not a better investment that we can make inside of these four walls today than direct-to-consumer yeah. spending. Um, it's amazing the, the capability that the team has put together and the targeted effort there uh, to drive results. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's Q&A session. I'll now turn the call back over to Kevin Sayer for final remarks. Thank you very much, operator, and thanks everybody again for being on our call today. You know, we saw a headline come across our phones while we're sitting here, what pandemic Dexcom uh, rocks here. I, I just want to tell everybody that we did have a great quarter, but we were affected by this like everybody else. Our commercial teams had to completely change the way they worked, and, and I had a town hall meeting with our team in the Philippines last week, and the stories of, of some people who literally kept themselves locked up in the city for two months away from their families 
to help our patients are incredibly inspiring. Uh, we've all been affected by this uh, and working from homes. And, and it's safe to say, like everybody else, we've never experienced anything or planned for anything like this. But what an amazing six months this company's had in this environment. I just want to list a few accomplishments over the last six months uh, in closing today. You know, we completed a financing that gives us the balance sheet strength necessary to accomplish all of our long-term goals. We achieved an absolute worldwide, a worldwide absolute dollar sales growth increase of 240 million U.S. dollars during this chaotic time. Our Type 2 business on the intensive insulin side is demonstrating strength and the outcomes we always said we'd have with these patients. Uh, we've waited a long time to execute on this plan, and we, we finally got into the hospital. Uh, and we think that will be a great market for us. Our financial performance is exceeding all of our plans on the bottom line, providing us with operating cash to reinvest in our business, as we talked about uh, money that we need to spend over the next six months of the year. Our G6 satisfaction scores are at all-time highs, again, during this period of chaos. We have a great product supported by a very dedicated team. And let's not forget our pipeline. G7 progress is excellent, as I said uh, earlier in the call. The groups working on this project are hitting on all cylinders. And there is nothing more exciting in Dexcom than the sense of urgency related to a platform change like this that's such a monumental effort. We are redoing everything that, that, that we do now uh, to bring this incredible product to market. G7 is not the only thing in our pipeline. Uh, we're spending numerous hours talking about G's 8, 9, and 10, and whatever else comes in the future, but we're also making sure we don't ignore G6. We have numerous product improvements and patient experience improvements with G6 uh, that'll be out over the next couple of years. We don't ever sit still. I just completed a series of virtual presentations for various groups here at Dexcom, and one of the questions I was asked to answer is, why has the company been so successful? And I narrowed my answer down to a very simple statement. We provide a solution to a very serious problem, and we do it better than anybody else ever has. As we look to the future, we can continue to do that, only we can do it much better than we do it today, and we believe we can solve many more problems in the same manner. It's gonna thrill the healthcare community, and more importantly, we're gonna save patients, caregivers, healthcare professional and payers time, money, and we're gonna to continue to save lives. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.